Good evening. What a blessing it is, brethren, together to worship the Most High God. We are blessed. We pray that we will grow in our understanding of our precious and holy Savior. Our call to worship this evening is Psalm 5. Psalm 5. If you would please stand with me and we'll give our attention to the living words of God. <clears throat> Psalm 5 and verse 1. This is the word of God. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me, but as for me, I will continue in thy house. I will come to thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. But there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. Amen. Amen. Please be seated for prayer. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this precious word. Righteous and Holy Father, how we praise and thank Thee for the privilege, the honor of coming into Thy presence as Thy people. How we praise and thank Thee and we give true thanks at the remembrance of Thy holiness. There is none other than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thy holiness Thy purity, thy righteousness, 
all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, infinite, eternal, immortal. We run out of things to say because thou art great, incomprehensible, and yet thou hast revealed thyself to us in thy word and in thy Son. How we thank thee for Christ Jesus. Lord, we meet in his name tonight. And I pray, according to the command thou didst give us, thou didst give us, draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. We come in the name of thy Son. We come in the power of thy Spirit. We come according to thy word. And we pray that thou wouldst fill us with the mighty power of the Holy Ghost. Help us to hear thy word, to believe it, and to walk in it. Father, help us as we sing to thee. May our hearts truly rise up in praise, for thou art worthy. And, O oh God, as we uh, pray, sing, and hear thy word read, May our hearts be united at the throne of grace. May our hearts be united in the love of Christ. May all that we do this evening bring glory, praise, honor, and thanksgiving unto thee. Oh, how we pray it. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> going to be singing from Psalm 4, uh, hymn 427, 427, the second tune, 427, the second tune. Let's stand together again and lift our voices to the Almighty. <clears throat>
brethren, please be seated for prayer and for the reading of God's holy word. Good evening, my brothers and sisters. Good evening. This evening we'll, we will be reading from First Chronicles chapter 11, but I would like to begin with prayer, if you all would join me. Holy Father, thank you for this opportunity that you have blessed us with to come and to praise and worship your mighty name. Amen. Thank you that we gather in one name. And we thank you so very much that you sent your son, our Lord, into this world to pay a price that we could never pay. Thank you that his blood was shed for us. And thank you, Holy Father, that you accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. Amen. Thank you that we can look to him. Thank you that our prayers are heard because of him. Thank you that we can come to this throne of grace as we are now here. We have gathered at your throne of grace, Holy Father, to praise you and to thank you for all you've done and also to ask that you would do even more. Lord, there are many, not just in our midst, but in our neighborhoods and in this world that are those who reject your truth, those that reject their only hope which is in Christ. We just pray that you would help us to proclaim your mighty name, that you would grant us the wisdom that comes from above so that it is pure and peaceable, easy to be entreated. Lord, help us to not forget that what we have, we have received. Forgive us when we boast as if we did not receive it. Lord, help us to be humble in your sight and in the sight of others. Father, we just pray that the world would see Christ in us and not only hear Christ from us. Yes. Holy Father, we pray that you would teach us this great love that you have described and displayed in Christ, that we would walk in that love and that we would share that same love with others. Help us, O oh Lord, for apart from you we can do nothing, and our desire is to know you, to worship you, and to enjoy you forever. Help us to do this, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Again, we'll be reading from 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verses... Hold on a moment. I will tell you. 19... 20. I'm sorry. 20. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 19. Thank you for your patience with me. First Chronicles, chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. Then all Israel gathered themselves to David unto Hebron, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. And moreover, in time past, even when Saul was king, thou wast he that lettest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord thy God said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore came all the elders of Israel to the king 
to Hebron. And David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, Thou shalt not come hither. Nevertheless, David took the castle of Zion, which is the city of David. And David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So Joab, the son of Zariah, went first up and was chief. And David dwelt in the castle. Therefore they called it the city of David. And he built the city round about, even from Millo round about, and Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David waxed greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. These also are the chief of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom and with all Israel to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had. Jashobim and Hatshomite, the chief of the captains, he lifted up his spear against 300 slain by him at one time. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahothite, who was one of the three mighties. He was with David at Pasdamim, and there the Philistines were gathered together to battle, where was a parcel of ground full of barley. And the people fled before the Philistines, and they set themselves in the midst of that parcel and delivered it, and slew the Philistines. And the Lord saved them by a great deliverance. Now three of the thirty captains went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam, and the host of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in the hold, and the Philistines' garrison was then at Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem that is at the gate. And the three break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. But David would not drink of it, but poured it out to the Lord and said, My God forbid it me that I should do this thing. Shall I drink the blood of these men that have put their lives in jeopardy? For with the jeopardy of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did these three mightiest. Amen. Amen. Well, brethren, as you know, normally we have a, a season of prayer uh, and then our preaching. But for our guest preachers, we always want them to have complete liberty of time, and uh, we want them to be able to preach uh, without looking at a clock. So uh, what I'm going to do this evening is ask two of our men to pray. Uh, then I will introduce our guest pastor, and uh, then he will come and preach the Word of God to us. I'm going to ask Brother Frank to come and pray, and uh, I'm going to ask Brother Jared to come and pray after Frank.
Let us pray. Father, how we thank you and praise you that we can come into your holy presence, even as we have been so privileged to come already, even in the singing of a glorious hymn, even in the reading of your word, even in prayer. Father, we continue in your presence tonight. Lord, bless your people. Give us, give us the grace of your presence in our midst. Father, how we pray that, that you would give us your gracious presence that, <clears throat> that we might know you in a fuller way, that we might go out from this place prepared to face the temptations that come our way, prepared to, to fellowship with other believers, prepared to share the gospel. Lord, bless us tonight. Bless your people. Father, we <coughs> do pray that you would work in this church, that you would give us grace to draw near to you, to be a people after your heart. Lord, that you would revive us. Lord, that you would come in your holy presence and power and quicken us, and that you would make us what you would have us to be. Lord, bless us, we pray. We are a needy people. We are living in a world of iniquity. We see iniquity abounding all around us, the love of many waxing cold, as you have said in your word. <coughs> and how we pray, Father, that you would bless us with reviving grace in, in our midst. Father, we pray for the preaching of your word, that it would go forth with power Amen. from this pulpit, yes. and that we would receive it into our minds and into our hearts by your Holy Spirit, by the unction and power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, bless us, we pray. Help us, we pray. Father, there are, there are many who are sick tonight. There are many who are suffering from various afflictions, and we pray that you would be with them. <clears throat> we pray for your healing touch. We pray that you would raise them up and strengthen them. We know there are some who would be here were it not for sickness. May you bless them. May you help them. May you encourage them. Father, how we pray that <clears throat> you would be glorified in our midst that you would be exalted. You are the exalted king. You are, you are the Lord of the universe. You are the Lord of heaven and earth. We praise you for your goodness. Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, we pray for your blessing upon each and every one of us in this place. Lord, minds that are dull, I pray that you would sharpen them and awaken them. Minds that are, are racing, Lord, I pray that you would calm them. Lord, may we hear your word preached. Lord, you are worthy of all of our worship, Amen. our glory, our praise to you. Lord, I thank you that you hear us. 
Lord, you hear our prayers. Lord, may what we bring to you be sweet to you. Lord, again, be with the children. Lord, may they sit, may they be at peace, or maybe they would even hear at an early age the gospel about to be preached. Lord, be with our brother. He's been up early. He's tired and weary. Lord, give him a strong um, mind. Lord, may his physical body be strong in you. Lord, may his mind be strong in you. Lord, may he preach in the power of the Holy Ghost. Lord, may Jesus Christ be lifted up. Be with them. Help us as we hear. Help us to obey what we hear and to do it. And to do it gladly because we want to honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, brethren, I am in this season of sickness delighted that this many of you could be here. Uh, we know that many of our our beloved brethren are sick, and there are other reasons why some cannot be here. So I'm delighted to see you all. Glad that God has granted us this opportunity. Um, our guest preacher this evening is Brother Curtis Knapp. I trust everybody has met him. We are delighted. He's from New Hope Baptist Church. Is it actually in Seneca? Right. They're in Seneca, Kansas, uh, which is a lot colder than down here. Uh, I met Brother Curtis at a youth uh, retreat uh, years ago, and I was trying to remember what year that was. We were both thinking it was probably about 2017, 2018, around that time. But we've had uh, a good fellowship uh, over the years, on and off. We've had good discussions, theological discussions. He edited for a number of years the Sovereign Grace Messenger and uh, had the remarkably bad decision to have me write an article on modesty for it. And uh, he, he made it through. So we're very grateful that uh, we not only remain friends, but that uh, he didn't lose any of his others. But um, it's an important point, and I always appreciate meeting men who believe that, uh, first of all, that men and women should be clearly and distinctly dressed as male and female, and they should be so modestly. <clears throat> you can look like a woman and look like a man without modesty, but we are grateful for that. Certainly thankful uh, for his many years of preaching and uh, teaching, and uh, he's going to share with us both tonight and, as you know, the Lord's Day. And we're looking forward to having the whole family with us on a Friday at Worldview Friday. So, <clears throat> brother, would you please come and preach the word of God to us? It's good to be with you all. It's an honor to be here. I know speakers are supposed to say that, but I do mean it. Um, I don't think uh, Brother Jeff knows what high esteem I hold him in, but I do. Uh, Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon. I don't remember the title of it, but it was something to the effect of that when God wishes to bless a people, 
he sends them a man of God in their midst. And uh, I want you to know you're blessed. Men like your pastor are hard to find. We will be looking at 2 Chronicles 14.11. We'll really be focusing on that particular uh, verse as well as 2 Chronicles 16.12. These are both kind of bookends of the life of King Asa, and they represent uh, both the highs and the lows. But we'll kind of be traveling around in the, the material in between there. Um, as well. The title of the sermon tonight is Too Weak Not to Pray. And since this is a Wednesday night meeting where there is a purposefulness with respect to prayer, it seems appropriate uh, for that occasion. Um, we see in King Asa um, an example in verse 11 of what we should be, an exemplary example of that. And we also see him um, later on what we should not be in exemplary fashion. He started his reign well, and he ended it very badly. Unfortunately, that was not all that uncommon amongst the kings. He started in humility and dependent prayer, but he ended in stubborn self-reliance. So he is a cautionary tale. Second uh, Chronicles 14.11, and Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. And then when you flip over a couple of chapters to 2 Chronicles 16, 12, you see the sad ending. And Asa in the 30th, 30 and 9th year of his reign was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. So looking at the context here with, uh, with King Asa... Judah was not in bad shape, actually, when he took the throne. His father was decent as far as the kings go. He left the country in pretty good condition. And that's really important to note because it shows that it is possible to uh, trust in the Lord from a position of material prosperity, which really is something that should be a burning question for us. It's not very likely. But it is possible. Thank God for that. We live in tremendous material prosperity. And it's, it's not serving us well. But it is possible to trust the Lord in that. Uh, so Asa started out well. The first several verses of chapter 14 chronicle his success. He did good and right in the sight of the Lord. He was a man serious about his faith. He was not a syncretist or a compromiser, hesitating between two opinions. He removed the foreign altars and some of the high places. He tore down the sacred pillars. He cut down the ashram and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and observe God's commandments. And the kingdom was undisturbed under him. For 10 years, there was peace. And he built fortified cities during that time, but... 
He wasn't doing that as an alternative to trusting in God, which is always a great danger. His reasoning, in his own words, in verse 7, let us build these cities and make about them walls and towers and gates and bars while the land is yet before us because we have sought the Lord, our God. We have sought him and he has given us, given us rest on every side. So in Asa's mind at this point anyway, trusting in God was not a rejection of instrumental means. When you fight battles, ordinarily you do it with swords and shields and bows and arrows and spears. <clears throat> so Asa wanted to make sure they were well fortified in the usual and ordinary means of self-defense. Verse 7 tells us that they built and they prospered. God was with them. Uh, he had a good-sized army, 300,000 men from Judah bearing large shields and spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin bearing shields and wielding bows, all of them valiant warriors. It would have been easy at this point for Asa to rely on the fortifications, to rely on his army, their skill, the materiel, and to rest in that because he'd made so many preparations. But he did not do that at this point. It would have been very easy for him to say something like, we've heard, soul, you have many goods laid up for years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But Asa did not do that. And really, he couldn't do it because on his doorstep showed up a million-man army of Ethiopians with 300 chariots. And if there's one thing that will take your breath away, it's that. And put a dent in your self-confidence. So what did he do? Well, he didn't surrender. He didn't wave the white flag. He went out to meet the Ethiopian army, and he drew up in battle formation, and then he prayed. And I can imagine that his prayer was full of fear and trembling and fervency. And Asa cried, verse 11, Asa cried unto the Lord his God, and he said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether in, with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God, let not man prevail against thee. There isn't any hint of self-confidence there. No false bravado, just fear and trembling. He refers to himself and Judah as them that have no power. And since he didn't have any, there was no basis for trusting in himself or in his army. And he could then have undivided trust in the Lord. He was too weak not to pray. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. There's not apparently an inward struggle here between trusting in his army versus trusting in the Lord. His army didn't give him confidence. 580,000 just didn't give him confidence versus a million. Oh, his army wasn't big enough, so he looked to the only one that was big enough, God. And isn't that where you want to be in your prayer life? That's where I want to be in my prayer life. 
aren't we often bemoaning the fact that our prayers are lifeless and they're lacking in fervency? But notice how Asa arrived at this point of fervency in prayer. He didn't schedule it on the calendar. It didn't come by means of an accountability group or by self-flagellation. It was the fruit of his weakness and his desperation. He was weak and he knew it. That's the key. He felt it in his bones. And the stakes were high. If Judah would lose this battle, they would lose possibly hundreds of thousands of men. There would be hundreds of thousands of widows. They would become slaves, those who survived, including their wives and their daughters, and you know what that means. And Asa would be either killed or he would be turned into some kind of a zoo animal to be paraded around at festivals, a conquest trophy of Zerah, the king of the Ethiopians. So the stakes were very high. There are many reasons why we don't pray. We're too busy. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to say. We feel like we're repeating ourselves. We've said it already. We have no appetite. It's not a priority. We're undisciplined, and so on. And those things are real problems, and there have been many books written about those problems, and they're good and helpful. But what I want to focus on here is this issue of desperation or the lack of it. Desperation will swallow up all of those other problems in a heartbeat and drive the people to prayer no matter how undisciplined they are. A man in a leaking life raft, floating in the ocean, far from any ship, sharks circling about, will cry out to God with great fervency. He will not need an alarm on his smartphone to remind him to do so. He will not need to be cajoled or guilt-tripped into it. He will pray like he has never prayed before because there's nothing else to do. And there's no one else to call on except the Lord. And what we see here with Asa, and we see it over and over again throughout Scripture, is this desperation and how it leads to prayer. If you look up the phrase cried out, or any of those you know, cognate verbs, cry out, crying out, in Scripture, you'll find many instances of desperate prayer. And the word in the original is a word meaning to shriek as if from danger. And then over in the, the New Testament, in the Greek, it comes from a word meaning to croak like a raven or to scream. In Exodus 2.23, the Israelites were being oppressed by the Egyptians and by Pharaoh. And we read, and it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of their bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. When they were gathered at the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army hotly pursued them, and when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord." In Judges 10, the idolatrous Israelites were once again 
oppressed. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. And it was desperation that made them cry out. When the Assyrians approached the gates of the city of Jerusalem with a massive invasion force and demanded that Judah surrender, Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet prayed about this and cried out to heaven. When Peter walked on the water toward Jesus, he made the mistake of contemplating the wind and the waves and all the reasons he shouldn't be doing this and why this shouldn't work. And then he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Bartimaeus and his blind friend were desperate souls because of their blindness and sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by and knowing this may be the only opportunity they ever get, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And many other examples could be given, and the common denominator in all of them is desperation. The cry of God's people in each and every circumstance is the logical and natural thing. It's spontaneous, it's not planned. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm all for planned prayer meetings. We have them as well. I have planned things on the calendar for prayer. I do that uh, because I know I will dissipate my life away in futility and vanity if I don't schedule certain important things on, on the calendar. So don't misunderstand me here. It's important to note in each situation, God answered the cries of his people. He came to the aid of Asa and routed the Ethiopians. Bartimaeus and his blind friend were healed. Peter was lifted out of the raging ways of the sea. God sent an angel and killed 185,000 Assyrians, rescuing Hezekiah and Judah. Israel was saved from Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. And so there is reason for hope here. We're not crying to a pitiless God. Fervent cries ascend beyond the ceiling, and they reach heaven into the ears of the God of hosts. We all know what James 5.16 says, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And in each case here, what we have is fervency. Psalm 34.15 promises us, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. So, this raises a question. If desperation is really the need of the hour, and if it is what leads to fervency in prayer, then what are we to do? What are we to do if we're not desperate? We can't just summon it up, can we? We're surely not supposed to just parrot desperation. It ought to be genuine. <clears throat> Shouldn't be contrived. So how do we get there? I'm going to come back to that at the end, but first let's consider what happened to Asa after his cry of desperation, the great deliverance that he experienced when God came to his aid and he routed the Ethiopians. After that defeat, 
of the Ethiopians. Asa and Judah went out and routed the cities of Gerar. These were Philistine cities that were in league with the Ethiopians. And out of those victories came the spoils of war and much plunder. 2 Chronicles 15 continues with Asa's reign, and it's a feel-good story thus far. The Spirit of God comes upon the prophet Azariah, and he goes out to meet Asa with a good and encouraging message from the Lord. He said, The Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season, Israel hath been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. And in those times there was no peace to him that went out, nor to him that came in, but great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. And nation was destroyed of nation, and city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. Be ye strong, therefore, and let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. So that was a hint. Azariah was telling Asa the Lord's predictable pattern. The Lord disciplines his people with various afflictions. He troubles them with various kinds of distress. But when they turn to him in their distress, he hears them and he helps them. Just like with the Ethiopians. Remember that, Asa. Well, Asa did not remember it. Or it might be more accurate to say, Asa did not keep it in remembrance. For several more years, he did quite well. He made many good reforms. But then, then Asa, like so many before him and after him, proved to be one who could not handle prosperity, at least over the long haul. So how about you? How have you handled prosperity? Years of peace and success did not bring Asa closer to God. He drifted away from God. The warning from Deuteronomy 8 was fulfilled in him. Remember, when thou hast eaten and art full... Then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, And all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. A new threat arose. Basha, king of the north in Israel, went and took Ramah, the city of the tribe of Benjamin, and he fortified it in order to prevent anyone in the northern kingdom from traveling down any longer to Jerusalem to worship there. So what did Asa do? Did he call on the Lord? No. He took treasures out of the temple of the Lord and used them to bribe Benadad, king of Aram. 
to break his treaty with Israel and instead make a treaty with Asa. And the terrible thing is it worked. I put worked in quotes. Ben-Hadad broke his treaty with Basha and attacked various cities in Israel, and then Basha had to stop fortifying Ramah. But you know, it's a bad sign when disobedience and faithlessness and compromise succeed. It is far better for us when God recompenses our disobedience with failure. Woe to you when your disobedience succeeds. Asa must have been proud of his ingenuity. A problem arose and he fixed it. No need to bother God here because Asa's got it under control. Enter Hanani the seer who came to rebuke Asa for his foolishness. And he said to him, Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Assyria escaped out of thine hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly. Therefore, from henceforth thou shalt have wars. Asa did not humbly receive that rebuke. He did not repent and change his ways. He was enraged. How dare you say that to me? Who do you think you are? Have you forgotten how prosperous we've become under my leadership? You remember the defeat of the Ethiopians, do you? Well, do you remember all the good works and the reforms I implemented after that? Have you forgotten how faithful and zealous I have been for the Lord God? How dare you suggest that I've been unfaithful to the Lord considering my track record? And then he threw Hanani in prison. Well, this prophet faithfully brings the message of the Lord. He risks his neck, and this is the reward he gets. But Asa didn't stop there. Verse 10 tells us that he also oppressed some of the people at that time. So apparently his rage was not sufficiently vented upon Hanani. He had to take it out on a bunch of other innocents as well. And finally, we come to that verse I indicated was the summary of Asa's failure and the closing bookend of his life, 2 Chronicles 16, 12. His faith in the battle with the Ethiopians was the apex of his life, and this verse marks the nadir. And Asa, in the 30 and ninth year of his reign, was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to the physicians. That's a sad end to the reign of an overall good king. Like so many others, he did not finish well. He would not humble himself before the Lord. He would not confess his sins and plead for the Lord's mercy, even when the Lord afflicted him severely. He spent the last two years in agony with throbbing feet, a stiff neck, and a hard heart. 
And his attitude seems to have been, I will try any savior but the Lord God. I'll pursue any remedy except repentance. So he sought the physicians. Let's try some foot rubs, hot and cold treatments, some dietary changes, some physical therapy, whatever. But nothing works when your problem is God. And the only solution that holds out any help, repentance, is the one you will not tolerate. So Asa goes from the heights to the depths over the course of his reign. And we have to ask what happened here. How did he go from humble dependence on the Lord to proud self-sufficiency? I think the answer is one inch at a time. imperceptibly that's what's scary about it over time his success and his wealth proved to be toxic for humility and faith prosperity is not the soil that faith grows in faith has to be kept in lively exercise or it atrophies but how can you keep up a lively faith in the savior if there is so many other saviors in your life competing for the job. So, what about us? This isn't just a nice biographical sketch, is it? We need to ask the hard questions of the man in the mirror. I'm sure that we all want to be in the spiritual condition that Asa was in when he humbly called on the name of the Lord in total dependence when confronted with the million-man army. I'm sure we don't want to be in the spiritual condition we find him in at the end of his life. So how do we cultivate the former and avoid the latter? Is it even possible to do so? It's hard for the rich to get into heaven, and most of us in the West are rich. We have an abundance, and it's not helping us thrive spiritually. In fact, it's killing us. In Old Testament days, we see that God would bring affliction on his people when they were fat and happy. We see God humbling his people to wake them up to their need. But we don't really see people in the days of prosperity doing anything themselves to address the problem, and that's usually because they don't see the problem. I want to come back in a minute to what God is actually doing to show us our need, but let's just address this question first of what can we do to cultivate a sense of our own weakness and dependence. And I want to emphasize at the outset that I'm not here about to present some five-step plan. This is... um, not one of those methodical things. If you follow this method, all will be well. It doesn't work like that. So there's two errors that we have to avoid here. We have to avoid the idea that God has done all he can do and everything's up to us. On the other hand, we must avoid the notion that because God must do the work in our hearts by his grace, therefore there is nothing for us to do. I think that the letter to the lukewarm Laodiceans is instructive 
It's what God wrote in the New Testament to a situation just like ours. Revelation 3, 17 through 20. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He's rebuking and chastening them. I mean, he loves them. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. So here's five things that we have a responsibility to do. And they're all tied together. Put on ISAV so that you may see correctly. That is, apply the truth of Scripture to your eyes. You are not strong. You are a weakling. Resist the flattering lies of the devil with the truth. Drill the truth into your head and pray that God will help you believe it. You don't have to pretend to be weak. You are. You are weak. And so am I. You just need to believe that and live in reality, not a fantasy world where you are rich and wealthy and have need of nothing. Number two, buy gold and raiment from Christ. That is, acquire it without money and without price. What does that mean to buy gold and raiment? It means to lay aside the filthy rags of your own righteousness and put on the white robe of his righteousness. We'll be talking about that on Sunday. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Reckon yourselves poor in righteousness of self and reckon yourselves rich in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Consider how bankrupt you are apart from him and how rich you are in him. Think of yourself in this way. Put on this thinking. Three, be zealous and repent. Confess your sin of self-sufficiency. Confess the sin of an imagining yourself to be strong. Confess the sin of acting like you don't need God. Number four, open the door to a knocking Christ. Quit closing your heart to him. Open the door and be reconciled to him and renew your covenant vows and commune with him again. And number five, when it comes to money and wealth, start giving it away. Your bigger barns are a stumbling block. Empty them and distribute the goods to those in need. There's no mystery why we don't have a lively faith in God when we're storing up money barns to trust in instead. And this won't be a one-time thing because God does bless givers, puts it back in. And so it's just going to be a lifelong giving out. So you'll have to keep giving. You'll, you'll get to keep giving. 
Don't make yourself to be a river, not a dammed up reservoir. How much money do we need to sleep at night anyway? That's what we should do. That's what we must do, and we must do it by the grace of God and in the strength that he supplies. We must do it in joy, not drudgery. Not in the mindset that these are meritorious works. They're not. But let's come back to this issue of what God does to remind his people that they're weak and in need of him. I think God is doing that for us. Have you looked around recently at our country and the state of the church in our country? America, as we once knew it, is over. It's over. But God is good. He is showing us that we need him. We don't need a strong America. We need him. We don't need the good old days of America. We need him. He is afflicting an arrogant, self-satisfied country and showing us how self-satisfied we are and how fragile we are. It is as if he has unleashed a thousand termites to chew at the trunk of the tree of this nation. And trying to politically solve the problem of the termites is a futile game of whack-a-mole. Where do you start? There is no politician, no president, no candidate who can fix this. There's the border. There's the $34 trillion in government debt, plus all the unfunded liabilities, plus all the consumer debt. There's rampant inflation. There's fentanyl, meth, heroin, marijuana, and so many other destructive substances killing hundreds of thousands of people every year. There's the destruction of the family. Sexual immorality, fornication, hookups, homosexuality, transgenderism, increased violence, the murdering of babies by the millions, lawlessness, spiking suicide rates, the deep state, the corruption of elections, the erosion of the Bill of Rights, abysmal schools and universities, which are usually just indoctrination centers, woke corporations, DEI, ESG, diversity, equity, inclusion, environmental, social governance, all this communist things, fascistic public-private partnerships, that's the euphemism for fascism, public-private partnerships, threats from hostile foreign nations, the threat of civil war, the threat of digital currency, the foster care problem, the sex trafficking problem, and then there's the church, or what's called the church. False teachers, false churches, false brethren galore, shallow preaching, shallow evangelism, constant quarrels over secondary matters, false unity, and ecumenicalism, on the other hand. 
So on the one hand, quibbling and quarreling and squabbling over secondary matters for which we should not separate from one another. And on the other hand, false unity and ecumenicalism. A church that looks little different from the world. And even in churches that are doctrinally sound, is there a prayer meeting? Oftentimes the answer is no. If there is a prayer meeting, is it anything more than a gossip session? A chance to talk about other people's problems? Or is it just an exclusive focus on health problems? Is the preaching a searching kind of preaching that makes a beeline for the heart, or is it just information for the head? Is there church discipline and a concern for the purity of the church? Or is the church utterly leavened? Are the pastors and elders shepherding the souls of the congregation or just preaching sermons to them? Not that there isn't shepherding involved in that. But this is a salt that has lost its saltiness. And Jesus said that that kind of salt is good for nothing. It's not even good for the manure pile. The only thing you can do with it is throw it out and let it be trampled underfoot by men. So the point of all this gloomy synopsis is that God is judging America. And he has started with the church, the household of God. And this is not going to be pretty. The situation is desperate. But this is good because God is showing us how weak we are. This is our Ethiopian army moment. This is not a million-man army of Ethiopians breathing down our necks. This is a million demons breathing down our necks. Is this not a cause for fervency in prayer? Is there no basis for desperate prayer? How much worse does it need to get? The lifeboat is sinking. The sharks are circling. And there is no one else to call on. There is no help coming from any, anyone else. It's God or it's, it's over. It's lights out. prophet told Asa that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Or to put it another way, God is looking for a few weak men and women. Weak in their own eyes. Men and women who do not think they are strong and have need of nothing. But men and women who know they are powerless to do anything And since they are powerless, they must look to God for help. Are you weak enough for God to show himself strong for you? When we are weak, then and only then are we strong. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are a marvel. Things are completely unraveling around us. 
A nation is in shambles. There isn't a lot of time left. And um, still, there isn't the kind of desperation in our prayers. There's not the kind of desperation in my prayers that there ought to be considering the circumstances. Oh, Lord, help us open our eyes. Help us to see that we need you. Help us to not just sort of wait out the clock and um, sort of bide our time until, until it really comes unglued, until we're afraid to walk out our doors in the streets. Pray that you would uh, help us to call upon you Help us to feel our need. Snap us out of it. Wake us up. Bring smelling salts in front of our nose and bring us to. Thank you for coming to the aid of those who call out to you, Amen. who cry out to you. Amen. Thank you for being so merciful. That you were merciful to the Israelites in the days of the judges is a wonder. It's an astonishment. Their provocations were breathtaking, and you had mercy on them. Lord, how much more than for we, your new covenant people, your law is written on our hearts. Yes. We, we call out to you in our need. We have no strength. We have no answers. We have no strategies. We are not hoping for November to 2024 to fix all these problems. Amen. We look to you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Be exalted in our weakness. Come to our aid for the sake of the people whom you love. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Brethren, would you please stand with me for our benediction. Brethren, we do not want the birds of the air to rob us of the seed that has been sown. Many of us here are certainly in tune with the things that we heard this evening. And I do pray that that will not slip away from us. Sometimes we must have as dark a picture as the scriptures will paint so that we will know that the light of the world is Jesus. May God take what we have heard and bear much fruit from it. Our benediction is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful 
is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Amen. Let us go in the name of our blessed Savior.